Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions of all kinds. And our second hour is something that we typically want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be speaking with veteran journalist, radio host, and interviewer Michael Krasny as he speaks to us about how to skillfully do interviews and get the most out of our shows. Well, speaking of show, Bill, let's get this party started. Absolutely, Liberty. Our first one comes from our friend David Paskett of Miami, Florida, and he asks, looking for a new projector that can be used in spaces that are not pitch black and have the ability to receive AirPlay and or Google Cast content, what should I be looking for? Any specific suggestions? Alex? Yeah, typically I wouldn't look for a projector that can get the Google Cast or AirPlay. What I would do is have a separate device that's going to be, you know, feeding into that. Um, one thing you may want to look at is projectors that can handle more than one input. So you might have two HDMI inputs that are going into that projector. One could be Google, a Google Chromecast, another one could be an Apple TV, and then you'll be able to solve those solutions e more easily or put in front of that some kind of HDMI uh, uh, switcher. So you can do those kinds of things to make that actually work. As far as what you're looking in projector is brightness, lumens. Um, 2,500 lumens should probably be your, the basic um, version that you could do. And then, of course, it goes up from there. So it's just a matter of, it's a function of price after that. So you want to see that. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people will look for a 4K projector. I think you're better off paying for brightness. Um, so 1080p is probably going to be fine. You probably want it to be able to handle 60p. Make sure that it can do 1080p um, and not, I wouldn't go lower than that. But I wouldn't necessarily, if I'm going to put, put money into something, I'd rather have something 1080p that's brighter than a 4K that is uh, darker for the same price. So take a look at that when you're looking at the projector. The other thing that's important, of course, is your screen. And what you're going to be looking for is the screen gain. Uh, gain of one is about even. Uh, as it goes lower, it basically deals with how bright that screen is going to be, but also how directional it's going to be. So as that gain goes up, a high gain screen might be as high as four. But as that gain goes up, it becomes harder to see at different angles. So you got to decide how big is your room and where people are going to be viewing it from. So those are some of the things to think about when you're deciding on a projection. It's the projection and the screen. Um, daylight screens are what we use mostly uh, for a lot of the stuff we do. You can also get paint. <laughs> so if you're always going to do it in the same place, we've actually used a reflective paint that's designed for that. The big thing is getting a lot of primer down and sanding that and really having a professional make it perfectly flat. And you get the paint on there and it will, um, it does a pretty good job. Not as good as the screen, but it's another way to do it. Next question. Next one comes to us from Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Haranam, Germany. And Fred says, for a mission-critical event, what device do you choose for video recording? Go ahead, Jason. I always ISO record on each camera, and I do that no matter what else I'm doing. You can't go wrong with Hyperdex. I, I've used them in every scenario that... Um, well, that I've owned them to have. And then, of course, you, you always want something that is color correctable and, um, you know, as, as high a quality recording as you can for the switched output, too. Um, so, yeah, rack them up and rack them carefully. Don't ever put more than two hyperdecks in a rack. For the wider ones, only put one because you will end up with cooling issues. Jeffrey? For me, uh, yeah, I've used Hyperdex before, but for me, it's I, I do a more software-based uh, uh, recording and streaming. So uh, Mac M1s seem to be the best out of uh, anything, and I can I can take multiples. 
and then stack them on top of each other and uh, do a multi-recording via NDI, via another uh, another source. Works really well. Alex? Yeah, probably 90% of our uh, records have been with HyperDex. One of the things to look at is we use the some of the older HyperDex, and one of the reasons for that is they have XLR inputs. So we can basically stack different ISOs up on those XLR inputs. Um, we actually, for those, we have... Dante to the Audinate, you know, the little the little ones that convert Dante to XLR. And we just so these a bunch of Ethernet cables that all run and go down the down the hyperdex to make that work. The older ones do that. The newer ones, ironically, do not. <laughs> so the newer the newer hyperdex do not have an XLR input. So that makes it a little bit harder for us to give give them individual audio. So um, we just end up having to record Dante separately, uh, all the tracks separately, and then we just use those for sync tracks. The um the thing that, you know, if you have a, a camera that can record internally, then that's great. A lot of times we have cameras that we that can't even do that. Um, we do try to make that work. Remember that if you're using, for instance, a Blackmagic cinema camera, uh, you have to record at 6K or you won't, or you get bars. <laughs> so you'll get letterboxing. So you do have to be careful of, of, of that. And, and we do, if we're doing it on the camera, try to record in RAW um, as opposed to some other format. Um, as we go through that, the for things that we think we're going to color correct, things that are high quality that we think we're going to go back and color correct, we consider a, uh, Apple ProRes HQ as our minimum that we're going to record at. For corporate and education, um, a lot of times we do LT, <laughs> so uh, so we we drop that down a little bit. It saves us some time to move the files around, and we find that nobody needs the, needs more than that generally if we're putting in a relatively good signal on the way in. The um, we we also never record in proxy. Proxy is I don't care about my video, you know. So do not ever ever record in proxy, um, you know. So the it's something you convert to when you have a higher quality version, so that you can edit and I don't know. We used it when we had slower computers, but you should never use proxy. The um, so those are some things to kind of think about as you do it. We record typically record the ISOs, and then we record a primary and a backup of program, and often primary and backup of clean. Um, the difference between program and clean is the lower thirds, if you're using a downstream keyer, are not included in the clean. So if you make a mistake, like give someone the wrong tag or the wrong, you know, something or other, or pop it in and pop it back out again, you can go back and fix those later without having to go all the way back to the ISOs. So those are some of the things we think about when we're doing records. Go ahead, Mitchell. I do mostly corporate work. Uh, HyperDeck, as uh, everybody has mentioned, is a, a good go-to device. It's about 99. 1% of the time accurate, meaning that sometimes it fails. Don't know why, but uh, I don't totally trust one recorder. I've got two, and uh, believe it or not, I go to my old uh, sound devices, PIX240, uh, to have a good 1080 uh, solid, rock-solid recording. And Chris? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing a show, um, and the company showed up with a stack of, we had they had eight Full width hyperdecks stacked right on top of each other, and I, I just looked at it. I was worried about the heat. Alex, I have a question for you. Um, with the supply chain shortages of the last couple of years, I think a lot of us sort of assumed that um, Black Magic took away the XLRs because of the lack of um, uh, A to D converters. Do you think that is the case? Do you think they'll uh, reverse that in upcoming uh, offerings? Or what's your thought think, on that? 
I think they I think they definitely took it out because of that. <laughs> so I think that that's the I think that they weren't going to be able to, I I don't have any information but I think that they wouldn't be able to ship the Hyperdex if they were waiting for the ADD converters and this was because right. of the the fire um so the AKM fire that that happened in um in Japan. And so uh, I think that that's why they they shifted down um because it's really painful not to have um not to have XLR inputs to be able to give your own you know give individual audio to each uh, recorder. I will say that I find that the um, the Hyperdex with um, SSD, the SSD Hyperdex, the larger ones, uh, are a little bit more stable than the ones, the minis. The, um, the minis are less stable, the ones on SD cards. It could be the SD cards too, you know, not the, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth. The other thing that's really great is that the, the, um, the uh, Blackmagic makes a Thunderbolt to four SSD dock you know the and and that dock is super useful on site so if you record eight of them and you have two of those docks you just stick them all in and hit rec- and hit move and now that our drives have gotten so much faster you can pull an enormous amount of data off very very fast and drop them onto some kind of rate so a lot of times we'll have um, those docks um, we have we oh no now doesn't have as many but pixel I used to have we have these docks and we would pull them onto a raid and it would happen. And the big thing is, is you just didn't have someone sitting there. While you're breaking everything down, you have a self-contained unit. You stick them all in and you hit move. You know, you drag them all, you just drag everything in and it just starts recording in an hour later or half an hour later, all your, everything's on a raid. And it was, uh, it's been super useful. So do you I think Black, so. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Do you think I'll bring so, it back? I don't know. Yeah, do you think they'll bring back XLR? They might, they might. Blackmagic tends not to zigzag that much. So I have a feeling that once they've taken them out, unless a lot of us push really hard, like, oh, we're not buying them because they don't have XLR, the chances of us getting them back are pretty low. Go ahead, Mitchell. I was just going to add to what Alex uh, was suggesting. I like the multi-recorder uh, because in a lot of jobs, uh, we have the client and, and another client and a friend of a client asking for copies of the job, just the raw uh, footage. So that's a neat way to do it because you can record as you go, and they don't have to wait for a dip to uh, be transferred. You just pop those SD cards out and hand them off to the client. And Alex, to wrap. And also, uh, be careful of what you promise clients on site. So um, a lot of times we charge extra if someone wants us to deliver something on site because it ties up the our loadout, you know, or it affects our loadout. And so a lot of times if you want it in 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever, it's what we, it's standard operating procedure. But if you want to, if you want to walk away with all the footage, um, oftentimes we can charge as much as two thousand dollars for that, <laughs> you, know, so, you know, because it's it's going to tie up a truck. It's going to you know, it depends on what what we're doing, but it's a big deal. And so it's not, you know, you don't want to give that away. You know, people should pay for asking for something that's crazy, you know. And what we do do very quickly is H two sixty four right after the show. So if someone wants that and they ask for it ahead of time, we can hand them an H two sixty four record, uh, no problem, and we produce that in a variety of different ways. Next question. And the Kokendorfer from Vieira Flores is up next. How do you prompt for specific dimensions, for example, UHD rasters, on mid-journey? Go ahead, John. I have not seen that specific parameter in, in the documentation. All I've seen is aspect ratio, dash, dash, parameter, uh, 16 by 9, or there's a series of different aspect ratios. And right now, I see 1024 by 1024 as the standard resolution, but I haven't seen any sizing parameter yet. Alex? Yeah, I've seen it go up to 1600, I think, but it, um, not, you know, I think that it's, uh, and I won't, I always, almost always put in 16 by nine because that's what I'm looking for. Um, but you, you're right, John, there's, I have never seen anything that says a specific resolution. You just set up your, your aspect ratio. So that's dash dash AR and then the aspect uh, space 
16 colon 9 and 16 by 9 or 1 colon 1, it'll automatically give you 1 to 1 if you don't ask for something. Um, when I'm doing elements that I want to use inside of a presentation, then I, I leave it at 1 to 1. Otherwise, it does weird things with the 16 by 9. Um, but if I'm doing them as obviously as thumbnails or, or something that's going to be go back into a video, then I, then I use 16 by 9. And Courtney? Yeah, I think they, they pretty much covered it. They they list these specific aspect ratios in their dash AR, but it will respond to 16 by 9 or other ratios. 7 by 4 is the, the one that gets you kind of closest to HD or 16 by 9. Uh, but I don't think they do resolutions up to 4. It doesn't do 4K resolution. I think it'll only go up to, as Alex said, 1440 width. Uh, uh, you know, fourteen forty square. I think is the highest resolution it'll it'll do, and it may depend on the type of account that you have as to whether you have access to the higher resolution. Next question, Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. Opinions on Stand Plus versus a standard tripod for fast setups doing interviews, and he's got a link to the Edelkrone product. Go ahead, Jeffrey. You know, I like their fa their fast tilt, the little one that uh, that you can put on on a DSLR and uh, and run from there. This one, I am I'm not a big fan of. I I've seen stands like this before. I actually have in my basement. I have a podium that has a uh, flexible like that. Uh, a lot of times, it's it's hard to get a position on it. A lot of times, you're gonna find when you get in your camera shot that that stand's gonna get in the way. It doesn't go up past a certain point. I it I don't even think it gets up to eye level uh, for most people, which is always a problem uh, with that. And and you want to try and and go down low. You're gonna have to figure out some space to put it in. The only thing that I think that it has going for it right now is those feet. Does that it seems to have a very stable base. So you could uh, definitely uh, set it up and forget about it. But other than that, I, I'd, I'd use something like this almost any time or my monopods because uh, I don't think this is going to work as well. And Bill? Yeah, the same thing. I, I, I agree with almost everything that Jeffrey said. I, it's a process of how much stability do you need? The geometry of a tripod provides kind of maximal because you've got those three legs up to an apex and it's going to be stiff in all directions anything that re relies on rectangles like this does i would uh, the first thing i would test is to go in and just try to put something on top of it get a picture and then just see if if somebody walks by does it have any lateral motion at all because if you're putting a camera and and somebody's not on a wide angle lens and real close that's going to be really obvious uh, so there are the tests in the real world that we have to do edelchrome is a fine company they've been making products for a long time they come out of the photographic industry so i don't dismiss the fact that they can make something fabulous and ship it. But I'm just wondering whether or not it works in the real world as I'd expect something to raise a camera up would. And Alex? I really want to test it. <laughs> like it looks really cool. Uh, it, it's a really cool thing that, uh, you know, it looks like it can do a lot of different things relatively efficiently. Uh, at the same price or at a similar price, I'd be really tempted to look, well, you still need a tripod or, excuse me, legs, but Take a look at the Kessler Crane Pocket Jib. Um, so, uh, you know, a jib, um, I've used a jib in a lot of places where where this would go, where I need to make it, there is nothing, when you're doing product work, there is nothing like a small jib to get all of your product shots and everything else that you need very, very fast because you just swing that jib to wherever you need it to be. Um, and to, to, to the point that was made earlier, you don't have to figure, you know, you can rotate it to wherever it needs to go. You can go overhead, you can go under. And um, so we've used jibs 
a lot for that type of thing. But I will say that this one looks really nifty, and we'll see if we can get a hold of one to, to try it out. And Courtney. Yeah, I'm taking a look at it. I mean, it looks like it'd be good for positioning a still camera, but I don't know if you wanted to put a camera operator on that and follow somebody around in an interview or something. I don't think it would work. I don't know. Yeah, I, think I don't see how pan is going to work at all. I think, I think it's really designed for a, a single user. Still for, this is for a creator. Like, you know, a creator who is by themselves, you know, getting angles and not necessarily, you know, operating it, but really just looking for, I need to get this shot. I need to get this shot. Yep. Next question. Get you up to good height. Mitch Hills in from Wilmington, Delaware. There's another microphone mute box out there. The Sennheiser MAS-133 microphone mute and companion MAS-1 button. And he's got links there to both. You know what, Mitchell, did you want to talk about it first before we get into the response? Uh, it, I, I am always on the lookout for anything that will mute anything else. Um, and what I've tried to look for is something priced between the road and the mechanical type mic switches and the more expensive, uh, for example, Studio Technology 204 and 205. This sort of falls in between. You can sort of make you do it yourself because it has the electronic switching in the uh, MAS-133 part of it where you can decide whether it's going to be push to talk or lock or toggle, uh, which is very important because you don't necessarily want to have to have it uh, where you have your hand on it all the time. And then they have that uh, companion button that lights up and gives you that capacitance switch. The important thing is it's instantaneous and it happens every time. Uh, the thing I don't know is whether or not it properly uh, passes uh, um, uh, power from uh, uh, for the microphone itself. So the question is, are they using a relay in there to make that happen? So the phantom power goes all the way through to it or not? Don't know. Okay, go ahead, Alexander. Yeah, it looks like a really cool switch. I can't tell, though, if it's just like a soft button or, you, Mitch, you said it, it, it is capacitive for sure? Yeah, it appears it's not okay. mechanical. Okay. And it looks like it needs 12, it takes 12 volts phantom power for the, for the LED light up function. But it's not a cheap solution because by the time you buy the button in and then you buy the MAS-133 box, you're looking at probably a couple hundred bucks there at least. But you know, um, if it if it is a good quiet button and you like the the LED light, might be worthwhile to you. I'll have to. Re I've got a Sennheiser rep. I gotta reach out to him about this. And Courtney. Yeah, my guess is that since it's got an in and an out on the box uh, and it runs off forty eight volt Phantom, uh, that there's actives and because you can program it to be either tap uh, press the button to like a cough button, hold it down uh, to mute or hold it down to activate or toggle on and toggle off. So it's got three different modes, and because it has three different modes, it's got to have some type of logic steering in there, which means it's probably an electronic switch, not a relay. Uh, and it's so there's some type of voltage control amplifier in there, and it will probably pass. I assume it will pass. Since you're plugging it into 48-volt phantom source to power it, uh, it'll probably pass that 48 volts on to the microphone as well. Uh, which is the tricky thing when you want to mute a phantom-powered microphone with a mechanical switch. It'll usually cause a pop, so you have to do it electronically. And Alex. 
Yeah, and I think the button that we were looking at is just the controller, and then there's the other assembly. And the other assembly, I think, is going to pass that 48 volt, and it's going to send the 12 volts up to the button um, to make that work. So you're you're going to be able to as the assembly sits. It looks like it's designed to basically sit underneath a table. So you you usually mount it underneath the table to to manage the mic, or you run it through. It's not really a, a tabletop kind of solution. And then the button would simply sim have a simple wire to to that that, that was um, accessible. So I do think it's definitely electronic. It's programmable. So it's, it looks really good. And and, I, and while it's not as inexpensive as mechanical ones, I think that the quality, I mean, again, what I will say is whether you're getting a mechanical one, like a, you know, the, there's a variety of them that are Whirlwind and many others that are there that, that, are, um, that, are, that are good. Not having a mechanical, not having a mic switch is really excruciating. I did, I did Mac, week, Mac break last week without a mic switch, and it was just so painful. <laughs> so so anyway, so I I definitely recommend uh, getting something if you're going to be on a show a lot. Even when I'm in meetings, it's just nice to be able to sit there and just tap tap out, move things around a little bit, and then tap back in again. It's a, it's a lot less distracting than using the Zoom mute. So next question. Mitchell Hill, Wilmington, Delaware. What E-mount lenses are best suited to my Sony FX3 camera autofocus? I hear only negative with Sony is the amount of ghosting. Do Canon, Sigma, and others come close? Go ahead, Brett. Um, well, that's a full-frame camera, and if you're looking for a zoom lens, um, probably my favorite lens for Sony is the Sigma 2470. Um, f 2.8 i haven't noticed any ghosting on it it's my go-to lens and it's a good thousand dollars less than the uh, comparable g master um, so that's the direction i would send you for sure and mitchell yeah the g masters are hyper expensive but you'd think you think that having a sony lens on a sony camera would be the best combination and i i don't believe that i think that the best combination is one that helps my wallet so, you know, going to a Sigma or to a comparable uh, Canon or something else that could be uh, attached to that E-mount, um, I'm just wondering how much of that magic that Sony does with the autofocus happen in the lens or in the camera or a combination of the two. And Alex? Yeah, I, if I was going to spend money on a on a uh, FX3, I'd probably keep on spending money on the lenses. <laughs> so, you know, the... This is this is one of those things that the Fenwick uh, cry once you know buy you know cry once buy once buy once cry once is that when you buy something in between you're going to find that at some point you're going to wish you had the the other ones um, you know so uh, the one that I'm using right now is a G Master and it is expensive and I'll bu I'll probably buy a couple more very slowly <laughs> because I can't afford to buy them quickly um, but I would probably rather rent them than than to, to buy less expensive ones I think you are going to find that the autofocus is snappier on the G series than than it is on a third-party lens. And Mitchell? What are you using, a 50 G Master? 35. 35. It's, it seems to be the magic distance to be able to do a web. Uh, web this one's a little webinar. bit further away. I mean, so now, again, I would probably use a 50 if I was using an FX3 because you're full frame, right? This I'm on an FX30, which is a Super 35, on a 35, which is giving me something close to 50. So, so if I was using a full frame sensor right now at the distance that I'm at, which is probably um, about four or five feet, uh, four feet, uh, I would use a 50 on, a, on an FX3. And just a quick reminder to our producers, this is a great opportunity for you to add any questions to the chat and most importantly to vote up on them because your questions dictate the show. And Bill, next question. 
Next one comes to us from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, guys. What pieces of equipment do I need to record and edit a stream in real time in order to upload the fixed final version of the stream as soon as possible? Go ahead, Jason. Oh, boy. Real time is uh, it's quite a tall order. Uh, in the past, I have used MIDI to generate LTC and then send that to what I'm recording through the switcher. And then a combination of scripting and... Um, and the Stream Deck to basically, when it's being recorded, push a button and basically be prompted just for a text box and I'll make my own notes about it. And then that can be brought in um, when I'm doing editing to make it as fast as possible. Maybe Jeffrey's got a faster solution. Jeffrey? So that's where those Blackmagic cloud devices came uh, in that, uh, that they brought out uh, last year. So basically what would happen is that you'd do the live stream and then somebody would be at the ready and be recording to, the cloud, to the, the cloud box that would then go to their computer. They would call up Resolve. They'd make the edits and then go from there. And of course, you'd have to have breaks in the recording so they could actually do the edits and then uh, send it out. And of course, the fastest way to send it out uh, as a stream without rendering it is just to actually create another stream and then play your edited version right after it. And Alex? So for real time during a show, there are two ways that we handle this. Uh, one is with Softron Recorder. So it's, I think it's called Movie Recorder. So Softron Movie Recorder will actually record a growing file. So it'll create a file that you can sit in your timeline in Premiere or Final Cut or Resolve. I don't know if Resolve works, but it works in Final Cut and Premiere. And what, what you can do is, is it starts to, it puts in a big file and a lot of it's black. It just keeps adding to the file in real time. So you can literally start editing fixes um, a couple minutes after the show starts, you know, or a couple seconds if you want, but a couple minutes after the show starts. And you can even pull those in. So Recorder will take in a lot of sources at one time. You can actually stack up all your ISOs coming into your editing system in real time and it just rolls in. And then you can sit there and start doing, you can re-edit, do a multicam edit or whatever you want to do and re-edit the entire show and you're a minute or two behind the show. Um, and so when you finish it, you've got a re-edited show, you've got anything fixed and then you hit go and you have to still render it out. Now, if you don't want to render it out, price point, price of poker goes way up. <laughs> so what we do for that is um, we use an EVS. So we use an EVS with, with what's called IP Director. And so an EVS with IP Director allows you to have a timeline. Can't do any fades, but you can do any kind of recutting or cutting that you need to in the EVS. You can take all your ISOs, your program, et cetera, and you're basically cutting the whole show. And you're, again, we a lot of times we offset by a minute or so out of it. The interesting thing there is um, oftentimes we're writing out, we're writing out a live file um, with the EVS so that when we get to the end, we don't have to render. It's just a file that's done, you know? And so, um, so either way, you know, and with the EVS though, you won't have to render it back out again if you don't want to. And so you, but you can be rendering the EVS in real time while editing and you're just a little bit behind the, the real show. Um, you, know, you can't, you, you, you wouldn't be able to do a lot of heavy editing. And so oftentimes we use both of those together. So we have the Softron there that we can go back and really do hard fixes if something needs to get fixed from the live show, like a demo that went bad. The EVS is mostly like that person said something we want to take out and we never want people to see that again. <laughs> so, and that happens, you know, really, really fast. The EVS is the most popular one and in broadcast. And so a lot of times you'll finish a live show like a Thanksgiving live or something like that. And they'll, the producer will walk out with a, a, a line of things 
that they didn't like for the East Coast live stream, by the time it gets to the West Coast and broadcasted, the EBS has made all those changes um, in near real time. Um, so those are those are those. That's really the expensive way to do it. The EBS is like a hundred fifty thousand dollar version, and the Softron I think is a couple thousand. So there you go. Next question. Next one comes to us from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris says, anyone tried the Ulanzi LS26 low-profile microphone arm 2991? Ulanzi is usually okay quality, he notes. Go ahead, Alexander. Yeah, Chris is right. The Ulanzi does make pretty decent, affordable products, really similar to newer in that respect. I have not tried this particular arm, but I did look at it a couple of months ago, and it looks like it's decent, and it looks like it's made out of aluminum. I would say that for about $25, $30 more, the Elgato seems to, I mean, that, those are the ones that I've kind of standardized for low profile. For the price point, I think they're really good. The Elgato arms have a slightly longer reach. They're about 29 inches where it appears that this uh, Ulanzi is about 19 inches, which to me is a little bit short. In fact, I even think that Elgato could be a little bit longer. So I would say go with the Elgato. That would be my recommendation. Mitchell? I love the idea of using low-profile mic arms because it gets the mic down and out of your face instead of having a mic be part of your presentation. And any of these uh, uh, upper ones where you've got a big mic hanging there in front of you, I know that's a style and maybe that's the style for the future, but having your mic out of the shot uh, is what appeals to me and you need a low-profile to be able to do that. And Courtney? Nah, you don't need a low profile necessarily. I'm using a, a scissor type uh, microphone stand right now that's holding up this mic and it is underneath. Uh, one strange thing I noticed about this, because it's just two uh, horizontally pivoting arms, it doesn't seem to be any way to adjust up and down any if it's not at the right height and you want to bring it up two inches. I'm not sure if this can accommodate that. Uh, it just it'll swing it in and swing it out, but at one horizontal level. And if that horizontal level of your desk versus your mouth is not the correct distance for the height of the microphone, you might have a problem. The other thing is these tend to uh, transmit a lot of vibration uh, along that uh, arm because there's no dampening in any way because uh, it doesn't have any scissor or adjustment up and down. So I'd, I'd make sure that you have a good shock mount on the microphone that's mounted on the end of the arm so it would absorb those um, thumps and bumps that of you touching your desk and putting your coffee cup down. And Jeffrey? Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. The, the thing with the Elgato arm, and I use a company called Vivo, V-I-V-O. They have an undersling arm. Is Those are pneumatic arms, so they will raise and they'll, they'll position to where you need it to be. Uh, so your microphone is at your mouth. Uh, for something like a desktop mount uh, or a desktop microphone that you'd probably want to have off to the side, this would probably be perfect for that. But once again, as Courtney also said, watch you got to watch out for the vibrations of the table. Uh, if you if you bang the table a lot, then you want to you want to take that arm and get it off the table somehow. And I'm not exactly sure if it's got a alternative to that table clamp on the bottom of the Ulanzi. Uh, so that could be a stopper right there. Next question. Next one comes from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. And Vincent says, I need a recommendation for monitor arms to hold 27 to 32-inch screens for an L-shaped standing desk. Is there any special function I should be looking for? Jason? 
Oh boy, you cannot go wrong with Ergotron for this one. Um, the special function that I would think about um, is that if you want the two monitors to actually be level and not ever so slightly off, because that will happen and it will drive you nuts, be sure that you get the side-by-side -side adapter and be sure also if you're going to mount it in the far corner of that L shape that you get enough extension to be able to get the monitors where you expect them to be. And Alex? Yeah, Ergotronics are great and very high quality. Uh, monitor Motion also make really good ones. They're better than Ergotron, but more expensive. <laughs> so, so, so they are, uh, at least those are the ones we've had in the past um, that we've used a lot. I've bought, I've bought, I don't know, 50 of them. So, um, so they're, they're, they're really, really nice. The less expensive one, the step down from those that still works really well, are Amazon makes an Amazon Essentials version of those that are two arms, and I don't know how many we've bought, but it's been many, many, many um, that they go into our kits. The ones that I have at home, I decide not to spend as much money as the Amazon ones, and I have the Huanu, <laughs> the Huanu version. They're a little stiffer, and they take a little bit more work, but they are rock solid. Um, and I have them kind of going all around. I have um, three sets of them that that manage this, you know, this uh, my little Telestrator, as well as two monitors here, two monitors there, and they're all on those. And what's nice is, for me, they're all independent. I just move them around all the time. Uh, I'll put I'll put a link in the in the uh, chat, but they're 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 pretty useful. And Jason. Yeah, um, along the lines of affordability, uh, the high end, the premium mono price ones also aren't bad either. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Office Hours has a few voiceover stars. What is the path to building a setup for voiceover work, and what exactly is voiceover? Let's get Mitchell. If I answer this, does it mean that I'm calling myself a voiceover star? Mm, I don't think so, but I am a voiceover guy. Um, as far as, it's kind of like two questions. As far as equipment goes, you need a good mic that's, uh, you know, matched to your voice and your style some type of preamp or a device to go between the microphone, uh, amplify it to your uh, computer, and then some kind of simple DAW so you can top and tail it. Those are the basics, and you'll learn that. Don't spend a lot of money on a mic if you're just starting out uh, because you really don't know what you're going to grow into or what kind of amount of business is out there. And speaking of that business, voiceover means when you put your voice over something. Uh, it could be over music. It could be over a, uh, a, a pocket uh, fisherman, it could be over a car dealership spot, it could be over uh, for your telephone answering machine, uh, it could be any number of things. Back in the old days when they did voiceovers, a funny little story, I'll make it quick, um, we used to have uh, a separate room where the person would be the announcer reading in the studio, and then there would be the engineer, the advertising executive, the client, and maybe a few hangers on, and you would read the script, and you would do the voiceover, and then you'd have to wait to find out they liked or not, because people weren't clapping, they weren't showing any kind of emotion. Uh, the, uh, the 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 client would usually look at the uh, the advertising executive, and they go, "Okay." And then the response you would get would be, "Eh, do it again." So that's all we used to get from it. Voice over. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah. So I've been doing this for forty years or so, and it, it, here's the thing: that boy, the business has changed. Once upon a time when I was starting out, you went into a formal recording studio, you had an engineer across the double glass, and you had a director usually or somebody from the agency sitting on the other side, and you would have to perform in real time. There would be a clock and start three, two, one, and you'd do it. And at the end of that, you expected to have a finished 60-second announcement, 59 and nine-tenths of a second, for radio or television voiceover, something like that. This whole business has entirely been reimagined. Now, everybody works from home. 
everybody links to work through a variety of aggregator sites and individual connections that you make over the course of building your stable of clients and things like that. There's very little about it that is the same as it was when I was starting. Uh, Because it is such a big industry and it keeps growing and growing, you've got all the character work of things like video games and stuff like that. You've got standard broadcast. You've got podcasts. You've got just everybody trying to say, hey, I think I could do that. It's very difficult to do the successful marketing to make a solid living at this. I think it was actually even easier back in the old days than it is today because there's so much competition. I agree with Mitch 100%. Don't invest a ton and think you're going to become a top drawer VO making a lot of money in the beginning. This is something you have to work on over the course of time. And as much as it is about building your skills and talent, and that is a real thing, and you have to learn how to do the work, you also now are usually responsible for marketing yourself out there. And the competition is substantially fiercer than it used to be. Because everybody with a Shure microphone in their bedroom is now part of your competition body, and it didn't used to be like that. So tough gig, but boy, if you if you truly love it and you get good at it and you build a reputation, it's a lovely thing to be able to do. Great points there, Bill. And just bringing in from the chat, Mickey mentions also uh, t- as a part of this process is to start building your reel. So as you are creating and, and getting used to it and doing work, spec work, then to also build a reel. And Courtney? Yeah, and as far as the uh, setup that you're going to need to do this, uh, if you're going to be doing it from home, you're going to need to find a quiet place that you can do it that doesn't have any echo or live walls, so you need some type of sound treatment uh, so the reflective walls around you doesn't add to the timbre of your voice. You need need to have a good pair of headphones, uh, usually a music stand or something to place your copy on, depending upon whether you're going to be sitting up or standing, uh, sitting down or standing, uh, and cover that stand with some type of sound absorptive material like carpet uh, so that you can set an iPad or your a printed script on. And you have to have the headphones because a lot of times if you're trying to do this for professional purposes where you're not recording it yourself, you're going to need an Internet connection to uh, the client somewhere who's probably got a, you know, sitting in a recording studio or sitting somewhere where they're recording and you're going to need two-way communication, so that's why the headphones are important to hear yourself and to hear them over talkback into your uh, your ears without it going into the microphone. Uh, let me see. Uh, an isolated room, a floating room, would be best because you know if you're doing all this at home and you're recording yourself, um, you need to find a quiet computer. Don't put it in the same room as you are and. Um, the sound isolation is important because you don't want a jet flying over or somebody, you know, uh, kids playing outside or jackhammer out the door ruining your very best take. So th- those are the hard parts. Then, the, you know, microphone, mixer, that other stuff is important too. But the the environment is the most difficult thing to to take care of. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, plus one on building a reel. you got to have a reel. Your demo is what you are. Nobody's going to hire just because you are a voiceover talent. It's also a side hustle. Don't expect to make a living off of it. Do it on the side until it develops into something because there's only a handful of people like Don LaFontaine when he was around and Joe Cipriano that do that and make a living at it and make a very good living at it. Uh, tie in with a company like uh, voicejungle.com. I use them 
uh, to clear all the voiceover stuff. And if you go there now, you'll see my name there. You can sign up and, uh, and, and try it, try it out because people will pick you. And, uh, as long as you have the equipment to make the recordings, um, there's, uh, there's a few bucks in it. I use the money I get from it to order DoorDash. And just adding to this Mitchell and, and Bill and panel, how important is it to have variety in your like tonation? And do you uh, do you have like you only do the you do niche down as well in in the voiceover space? I think that you you can show variety, but I think as you're if you're starting out, um, you know where your wheelhouse is and what you can do well. And uh, for some strange reason, I do car dealership spots all day long, and I'm 68 years old and. It takes quite a bit out of me to do it. So it's neat. It's not even on my demo reel. That's the crazy thing about it. So, yeah, I think that in, in principle, it makes sense to have a, uh, a lot of variety. But the problem is, if you're starting out, your, uh, your ability to do different things, different kinds of reads, is going to be restricted until you get professional and used to doing that. Bill. Bill? Yeah, I'll also notice a couple of things. One thing is that the rise of different kinds of voiceover used to be mostly advertising and that kind of orientation. And Mitch is exactly right about those things. There is now more like audiobook narration where they sometimes want characterization and they want you to perform multiple characters in a single setting and keep them distinct as you go through the book. The other thing I wanted to mention is don't forget, this is another area where AI is making a gigantic impact. We are on the verge of AI being able to synthesize voices and things like that. So in terms of the long term, I mean, I think part of what's happening with the Writers Guild strike in Hollywood right now is about the use of recorded material from writers and performers into computerized digitization systems so that producers can then reuse pieces of that. It's a big sticking point in these negotiations. It just means that the whole industry is in another inflection point and it's going to affect how people earn with these kind of things in the future. Just a note. Chris? Uh, this is one of these parts of the industry where there will always be the high end, and then there will always be the low end. Um, we were having this discussion about um, Zoom's new uh, production studio and how it takes a big bite out of sort of the low to middle end of the industry. And it's always good to just aim for the top. Don't worry about the middle and the bottom. I will tell you as an editor, I have edited many a voiceover, many a voiceover that was recorded by the producer in their car or closet onto their iPhone directly. And they text me the file and they say, put this into the piece. So just aim, aim for the top. It would be my recommendation. And Alex? If you haven't gotten into voiceovers, don't do it. Like, I'm just going to let you know, like, it's, it's over. Like, it's, so if you're established as a voiceover artist and you have clients and you have 20 years or 30 years of experience or 10 years of experience, then you still have a business to do. But this business is over. Like, you know, like, and, and there's very few places that I can cleanly tell you that AI is going to take over, but AI is going to take this over completely. Um, when you listen to the voices that are coming out, Apple's doing it for, you know, the book reading is going to be, again, it's not going to go away for the folks that are already there. It's going to be something that they can build a business around, that they can keep their business running for quite some time because they are highly skilled and they bring something extra to the book. But nobody entering the business right now, you know, it takes years to get good at what you're doing. And by the time you do that, IAI is going to, to meet you there and it's going to do it better. Like, it, it, you know, that's the, the, the hard part is, is that when you talk about like all those character voices, 
it will do a different character for every one of those. And you'll pick them at the very beginning and you'll hit go. And 15 minutes later, you'll have the entire book, you know, uh, read out. It just, it's not going to pencil out. Like, it's just not going to pencil out. And, and so, um, you know, I just don't think that I would not get into this business, at, you know, at this point. It'll be almost impossible. And just adding one more community comment to it, Mickey mentions, once you have an impressive reel that starts to sell, look for an agent or an agency to get you work. And speaking of questions, <laughs> go ahead and continue to vote up on our on your questions and prepare for a second hour because we're getting a, close to that time for Michael Krasny to come on so you can get your questions in early so that he can get to them. Next question. Philip uh, looks like Tesoro in Brisbane, Australia, says when outputting video and audio over NDI from vMix into Zoom, my audio has some clicking on the listening end of the Zoom call or webinar. Listening in NDI monitor on the Zoom computer, the feed is clean. Any ideas on how to fix what Zoom is doing? Jeffrey? Uh, there's several things that you can do. And in fact, the last year I went through this a little bit where we heard on the panel a little bit of clicking. And for me, it was, it's my audio start, sounded great. And then all of a sudden the clicking started to happen afterwards. First thing you want to check is uh, if you, if it clicks with original audio on as well as off and uh, check that not only with one sort with one uh, source, but multiple sources to make sure that it's happening across the board not just one person hearing a click. Uh, you can update NDI on both ends, make sure that they're trying to match. vMix, I don't know what version of NDI vMix has, but you can manually update NDI in vMix. However, I would, uh, I would go against that. I would say whatever version of NDI comes with the version of vMix that you have, you should match your other computers to that same version. That way you're not uh, causing any problems. You could go up a little bit uh, to the next version, but I would try to stay with the same version uh, between the two. Um, you want to update your sound card. You want to, you, and, and of course, sound card and the computer are the two unknowns that we, that we don't know right now. Because if you've got an underpowered uh, computer, if you've got a sound, an older sound card, we could, you could have some problems there that maybe an update will fix or or whatnot. Once again, we could be talking about bitrate as well, uh, sending the bitrate into Zoom as opposed to the NDI monitor. Uh, check your network. Make sure that you're not uh, you're not overpowering your network while you're on your Zoom call. And then, of course, the same on the same token, uh, check the power that you have connected up to the computer. Is your computer a laptop? Is your computer a desktop? Is are you getting enough juice into your computer? Do you have a lot of programs open up in your computer when you're sending to Zoom. Are you trying to do a uh, a screen share at the same time when you're uh, when you're doing your video? These are things that can cause the audio to start to skip because the, the your network's not pulling uh, pulling the packets uh, out that as well, and of course the computer is starting to trying to really chug to get going. So those are the few things that I would uh, check out uh, and get back to us and let us know what happens. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer, VR Florida. Any thoughts on Yealink cameras? That's Y-E-A-L-I-N-K. Quality, reliability, and there's a link there at the end of the question. It looks like no one on this panel has had a chance to take a look at the Yay link. So, Andy, we might, we'll have to come back. We'll push this. Well, if you can ask this question again, maybe give us some time, maybe next week, Monday. Next question. 
Next question comes from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. I heard a rumor that we may be able to use clear comms in the future. What would be required for each panelist to be compatible? Mitchell? I can only elaborate on the question is if we go to a better uh, comm system than what Unity is, uh, are we going to go to a hardware-based system or is it going to continue to be software? If it's hardware, it would require something at each of our client sides to be able to accommodate that. Um, I hear ClearCom would be wonderful. Um, I believe I heard on a show recently, Alex saying, if you use it, you'll never go back. So that has me intrigued. Bill? I used to, I owned and used a ClearCom system for many years for our backstage communication. It is a specialist tool and it's fabulous. I believe they have a web interface now. So my suspicion is that there will be an app or something like that that links into the ClearCom system. Now, it will not be quite as perfect. And the reason I use that word is that a good ClearCom system, well set up, you can literally whisper at the tiniest level and everybody on the system completely hears every part of your whis- your whisper it is an highly it is a noise free highly stable backstage communication system and i've had to use those in circumstances where you're in a very quiet production environment like maybe somebody's speaking on stage and everybody is completely quiet listening to everything the ceo has to say and you need to be directing over on the side so everything you do in terms of directing has to be in the quietest of whispers and the system still works under those kind of circumstances so we'll see what happens but my suspicion is that there will be a mobile app or something like that that will allow those of us who don't want to invest in clearcom hardware at our desk to still participate we'll see and just a quick correction, Andy, I meant you can ask that question tomorrow. I didn't want you to wait a week to see if you can get an answer. Next question. Sure. Roscoe Jones is in Next from Madison, Indiana. Speaking of mic table vibrations, what substance would you put under a desk to minimize or absorb any vibrations? Would padded carpeting be enough? Jeffrey? I actually learned this uh, two weeks ago on Office Hours, uh, as somebody else suggested it, uh, that neoprene works uh, pretty well on on vibration. And then this is if the vibrations are coming off the desk. If you have something like the underslung arm that's already on the desk, that's that's a different story. But anything, any vibrations from the floor, anything like that, neoprene works. But the other thing that I like to do is I like to put my desks on wheels. You get a good one-inch wheel with rubber uh, or rubber si- uh, sides on it and spokes. That becomes its own little shock absorber right there. And then, of course, the best part about that is you can wheel the table, the desk out, and wheel it back in so you can clean underneath or, or get to the cables or whatever. Mitchell? I like Jeffrey's suggestion of neoprene. I uh, didn't think of that, but some some manufacturers use that. It has a density that helps to uh, to pick up those vibrations. This is a mechanical problem. It's not a sound problem. And mechanical vibrations generally end up becoming sound if they're in a wall or on a tabletop or other things like that. Um, it transfers that mechanical sound, that mechanical motion or vibration into something which then turns into sound. So um, I think mass, anything with mass, like like uh, uh, a stone or a slab of marble or something else would work well. Or in my case, I have a very solidly built table that has a clamped microphone and a gator boom on it. And I can hit it pretty hard. And you're not seeing a camera move or much of the uh, the microphone pick up that sound other than the actual sound itself. So uh, mass is the ticket. And Courtney. 
Uh, yeah, they, what I use a lot is foam neoprene. Here's some here that I use in uh, microphone shock mounts. And you can see it's very compliant and squishy. Uh, and it's the thing about neoprene versus other type poly, polyester foam is polyester foam will kind of crinkle. As this. So if you're putting this near a microphone, this makes no sound where, you know, poly, polyester foam will. So foam, rubber, neoprene, and you can get it as weather stripping. One of the cheapest places to get it is get two inch wide weather stripping. It'll have an adhesive back on one side of it that works very good to stick it down to something. And you don't want to put it under the table or under your desk. You want to put it between the desk and whatever you're going to be pounding on the desk, <laughs> like below your keyboard or something, prevent the vibrations from getting into the desk and then being transmitted to everything else on the desk, uh, or put it under your microphone stand to prevent the desk vibrations from getting up through the microphone stand uh, into the microphone itself. And I use this little piece on my boom arm across. Uh, I stick it in between the scissor arm and the springs to dampen the springs and it will dampen the vibrations that are going back and forth in the springs that make it sound like this. Cause I pull this out. And Bill. And the two biggest uses of neoprene are skin divers, wetsuits, which you don't want to cut up because they're very expensive and giveaway mouse pads. <laughs> There used to be the thick mouse pads that everybody used on their desks were made of neoprene. So if you can find one of those, they're almost perfect for putting underneath a mic, <laughs> a mic stand. Next question. Uh, next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Gray television stations will be using Waymark's generative AI software to enable local businesses to cost-effectively create advertising. How will this affect the small to mid-market production professional? Jason? Mm, I'm going to go with it won't. Uh, it's certainly a good start. I, I'll give them that. What really gets me is if you go into templates and then look at testimonial, it says, here's what real people are saying about the business. Oh, faceplant. Mm, Courtney. This probably just supplants the what we used to call slide VO type of advertising, which is just stills with a voiceover track that runs over the top of it. And AI can certainly create that uh, very easily and might be able to generate even some type of motion or animation as well. So that's the level of advertising you're going to get. though. And Douglas, to your point of like how this will affect when you look at what is happening in AI, that it's definitely like who they're targeting. So it's possible. I don't know what the price range may be that they are like for businesses to actually use it, but you're probably looking at some that are maybe just starting out, some mom and pops that will help them to get started, which is is definitely if it's something that's more entry level, that's definitely helpful. But then AI won't necessarily in this case won't um, replace strategy and things like that. So that's when you have these kind of conversations of like how will it affect the market? Well, it'll help people in the on the entry level part of things, but then there's still some things that would just need more effort and some more work to just make sure it really is efficient for the actual business. Next question. Let's go to Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's the best app to make a pitch deck, Canva or Keynote or perhaps something else? Jason? I can't say there's objectively one that is best. I think really what matters is what you're best with. Um, I learned 
very early on to to use and love Keynote. Um, in fact, it's probably the first time that I really got good at animating. And to this day, it's still one of the fastest possible ways, at least for me, um, to get in, get what I need and get out. And, um, you know, if necessary, very quickly turn around and get an alpha channel removal um, for video playback with the exact same deck. John? Sorry, somebody's texting me. Um, I don't care so much of what tool you use. I say go find the decks of the companies that just got funded. You'd be really surprised to see some of these decks that got funded. One interesting one of note is Sam Altman's one. When he was the CEO of, um, oh, what's the name of the company was at before OpenAI? Anybody remember? He was, uh, he was a VC at, at that firm in uh, San Jose that teaches people how to raise money and his presentation and his pitch decks are amazing. So look those up. They're very, very informative, more so than what tool you're going to use. Yeah, to John's point, it's kind of like use what's what's in your hand. I went through Techstars, which is one of those programs that help startups uh, to get their businesses together, get their ideas together, get them pitch ready. And we actually used, it was Keynote. So they were designed in Keynote. So what you really want to do is understand whoever you're presenting to, it's really about them and what they're looking for. So if you know that traditionally the style of decks that they look at are no longer than eight pages there and there's there's levels to this so it's really understanding who you're presenting to and what they are looking for in that presentation deck and then going from the tool that you understand unless you're going to hire someone to actually create because that's a uh, that's a thing too to hire someone to do your deck for you so whatever the tool is that you can work best with and understanding who you're presenting to and what they're looking for bill Final word, make sure that you study how to create decks before you use any of these tools to do them. I would send you in the direction of the seminal work in this is Edward Tufte's The Visual Display of Quantitative Information. Even if you don't care about the kinds of things he talks about, his approach to why graphics work or don't work and don't bore the heck out of your audience is critical to understand before you sit down to make any of these because most pitch decks are horrible. And Bill, just to your point there too, um, also Guy Kawasaki, it's yeah. probably like a number of years ago, let's just say that. And he talks about like what it looks like on the pitch decks and the type font. We talk about that a lot here on Office Hours as well, but like how many slides you should have in your deck and going back to the idea of what phase of the process you are with this pitch deck, that more times than not, the fund or whomever you're looking for the investment for will also tell you. So that intro deck really shouldn't have too many details or be too, uh, yeah, have too many details and that's, you know, a few slides. And then when you're actually, because each deck, and I'm coming from the investor perspective, I'm sure Jason can like speak to um, when you're like doing business plans or from the like pitching for proposal wise, but there are, as you're building the relationship with the investor, then yes, when they get to the due diligence, they may be looking for more in that deck. But yes, you're, you're really looking at, Guy Kawasaki is, is a good resource. Even Techstars, they have, like, if you go to their website, they have so many tools. They're constantly talking about pitching, and that will, that will help if that's a resource that you're looking for. Next question. 
Next question from Douglas Carmichael on September 18th. The singer Renee Fleming will be presenting an IMAX live concert from the Théâtre du Chalet, I believe, something, or Châtelet, in Paris. How would they distribute the event from Paris to each site? Would it be SRT to a hub site and another format to the theaters? Courtney? Uh, my guess is it's going to be all satellite, encrypted satellite, Q-band or something, satellite transmission is the easiest way uh, than trying to do it somehow over internet or glass fiber of some sort uh, to the individual theaters. And a lot of those individual IMAX theaters had a satellite system set up for delivery of DCP products, uh, digital products that they're distrib- you know, that they're normally showing in their theaters, not for real time, but for data collection. And they have a fast enough data link to, to show high def IMAX. So they probably would use a satellite connection of some sort. Alex? Yeah, typically this type of thing uh, is often done with, it can be done with the satellite uplink uh, and then downlink to a sim- uh, specific location and then distribute it out to the rest of the theater. So it's not going out to each, each individual theater from that space. It's going back to a hub um, that's going to do that. It's probably not SRT, probably something like LTN or or, or a satellite or a bit of both. Oftentimes you'll use something like and, uh, an LTN or the switch and you'll get it, you'll use that as a as a backhaul and then you'll use a satellite as a backup. And so that's that's typically the way they might they might do something like that. Next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles is up next. What does a $100 rack mount power conditioner add to a rack mount case that a simple power strip doesn't? Jeffrey? Be very quick on that because there's a lot of factors and it really depends on what you're going to get for a rack mount case. I'm a big fan of Furman, my, by the way. Uh, the jewels is the big thing. You can get uh, you can get more protection off of a rack mount because there's more space inside there. They can separate the plugs a little bit better. And of course, there's going to be a lot, a lot less electrical fields on there. You do lose a 1U usually in a rack mount or a 2U depending on uh, which one you have. But it does give you a cleaner look. And uh, but the the other on the other end, having that uh, that loose plug outlet means that you can uh, move things around if you need to uh, find it uh, stretch out to another device. And one more thing, very very important: do not plug in a strip to a strip to a strip. That causes more problems than anything. And if you're if your Furman or your strips are over five years old, you should just straight up replace them. All right, we are now jumping into our second hour and our second get our hour for our we're jumping into our second hour and our guest for our second hour is Michael Krasny. And uh, I spent years uh, listening to Michael's uh, show forum on KQED. I, he spent 28 years uh, interviewing thousands of stars, politicians and thinkers. And uh, I spent a lot of time driving and listening to that morning drive uh, of forum. And uh, we actually met during COVID. Uh, we, I invited Michael to come on to the show and just talk about um, his, his history and how he came on. Uh, today, we're really going to be talking about his interview process specifically. Um, but but we, he came on and we met. And then as, as we continue to talk, we realized that um, we were the last two adults not making a podcast in Northern California and thought that we should probably go ahead and uh, and, and 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 build a podcast. And so we've uh, t- we've worked together um, along with a couple other folks uh, on graymatter.show. So if you go up to graymatter.show, you'll see um, incredible interviews 
uh, that are happening almost every single week. Um, and uh, it's basically what we liked the best about Forum, and then we added Mukana and the internet and let people able to ask questions from all over the world. And so that's what we have there. Um, and it, again, we record it almost every week. And uh, and I consider Michael one of the best interviewers in the business, if not the best. And I'm really honored to have him here today. Welcome, Michael. Good. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, first question I'll kick off is, is how do you start? when you When you know that you're about to interview someone, how do you... Um, get started on preparing for that interview? Regardless of who I interview, I want to be, and let me emphasize this, uh, I can't overemphasize it enough, um, I want to be as prepared as possible. So, because I do in-depth interviews and I do content-related interviews, so I want to learn as much about whomever I'm interviewing, read as much about that person, read whatever that person has in print or whatever text is related to that person. If it's a novelist, I'll read the novel, actually. I have probably an inflated reputation for reading everything that that person has written, which is not the case. I mean, I'll read a chapter here and there from a book or introduction and a few other things that are in the book, the beginning, the conclusion, so forth. But you can't over-prepare enough. If you're doing an in-depth interview, if you're doing an interview that really has to do with content. It's not just an entertaining interview or an interview that's ad-libbed or something along those lines. Then you really need to be prepared, and preparation is the key. Read as much as you possibly can. Excuse me. <clears throat> I, it's almost that simple. I, I, you know, I know that oftentimes when you do the intros or you ask certain questions, uh, the interviewees are very surprised that you know that thing. <laughs> you know, that do you try to find something that's deep in their past or deep in, into there to kind of really pull something out that the average interviewer wouldn't find? That's an astute observation on your part as a listener, uh, and you're absolutely right. There's a kind of delight on my part in finding things nuanced or finding things that are perhaps even a little bit obscure, than throwing them into the mix. Uh, it, it usually, especially if you show that familiarity and you have those kind of facts at your command, you're going to win the trust and the favor of whomever you're talking to. And that's a big, important part of interviewing. That is winning that trust, establishing rapport. Uh, I, again, this is something that can't be overemphasized. And, and our, our, oftentimes when you're looking at an interview with someone, a lot of folks that, we, that, that you've interviewed have a lot of, very multifaceted. They've done a lot of things in their life. Do you try to find a specific thread to go down as you, as you prep that interview? Not necessarily. I think I'm, I'm more of a journalist, more who, what, when, and why, those kinds of things. But I'm also keenly interested in what interests me. Um, I don't mean that to sound narcissistic. I mean, there are things that I want to be curious about and whatever taps into my curiosity and whatever I think, there's an old Kurt Vonnegut line about writing, you know, you're writing for strangers. You're thinking about who your audience is, but at the same time you're thinking, if I, if I open this up, and especially if it's going to be the possibility of opening up not necessarily a Pandora's box, but something that will be controversial, something that will hit home in some way and bring enlightenment or illumination, but also maybe even a little edge. That's what you want to find. And uh, do you have any specific interviews that you remember the most that, that really stick out um, for you? I think it's an old saw that you remember the best ones and the worst ones. and <laughs> I think that cliche holds up for me. Right. I remember, you know, highly energetic interviews. Barry Humphreys just died, Dame Edna, and 
I remember that interview because it was hilarious. You know, he was an entertainer, and I didn't have to do all that much to really get him going. But the interviews that are the most challenging and the most difficult also stay in the craw of my mind and will remain there until probably I'm deep down in the ground. What do you think is the hardest interview that, you, uh, that you've done? Hardest interviews, I think, are those who are... Uh, you got to pull teeth with them. You know, you've got to really get them to open up. And there are some people who are just reticent or shy or don't want to talk. Uh, and that can be extremely challenging. Uh, you have to be very inventive and kind of, uh, as much as you can, draw the person out in ways that will be stimulating. And, uh, and and when someone when someone's in that kind of yes or no mode, um, how do you pry them open? Uh, is there any sp- specific techniques that you use to kind of get them to stop saying yes and no and start elaborating? Well, sometimes it's just the elephant in the room. I mean, I like to think of myself as speaking in honest and authentic ways. And so sometimes I say, are, are you being reticent or is this your natural way of right. interacting? Uh David Byrne is a good example. I remember he was a very tough interview because he was just not forthcoming. It was mainly, like you say, yeses and nos, and I felt like you know I was doing orthodontia work or pulling teeth. But the reality is that uh, I just said to him, you know, why aren't you being more forthcoming? I thought you'd be more verbal with me. Yeah. I put him a little on the defensive, perhaps, but you know you have to sometimes did, do that. Did it work? Did it work? Did he open up after that? The what? Did it work? Did, it, did he open up after? Yeah, he did open the... up a bit because I also uh, said to him, what do you want to talk about? You know, there are lots right. of things that I want to find out about you and that I want to go into with you, but is there anything that's particularly preeminent in your mind? And sometimes that's a good kind of breaking open the shell that the person may have around them. Yeah. I think that did work with him, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think that you're really good at it with with an interview is is really making it really feel like a conversation. You're just kind of going back and forth, and and at, uh, within a f- couple minutes, it's just it's just kind of rolling along. And do you have any tricks beyond just experience? But any tricks that you use to kind of have it feel that way? I don't know if I call them tricks, but there is something about just bringing in some levity now and then, you know, especially early on, uh, to make it seem like it's more conversational. Humor can be a real particularly useful instrument in any kind of an interview, for lack of a better word. Uh, I almost said something other than instrument, but instrument sounds a little bit medical to me. Um, I, I think, you know, making the person at ease is part of that. Making uh, the conversation feel like it is part of rapport rather than digging deep. If you want to do that, you, you take on a different kind of tempo. You take on a different mode, and it's more relaxed because conversation is more relaxed. Interview is kind of an art and a craft, really, but conversation can be both of those and even more. It's It's usually much more comfortable. So make the person comfortable and talk about things that are... Sometimes surprising. You know, you got someone who's there. I've, t- I've talked to nuclear physicists, and suddenly I'd say something like, uh, you know, were you kind of a nerd in high school? Was that what really uh, how you characterize yourself? I mean, something that's just not predictable. But say it in a way that's friendly and say it in a way that suggests rapport. One of the things you talked about a little bit earlier is curiosity and and how I find that a lot of times when I'm doing some, some interviews, I just have to be curious. Like it's not, it's, and it gets back to what you're interested in is just to do, how much do you have to just kind of trust yourself to ask the right next question based on just listening to it? Oh, you have to trust yourself. And, and sometimes, 
It can be perilous because you shouldn't trust yourself <laughs> in all occasions. But yeah, if if you're really curious about something, it's a wonderful touchstone to yeah. the kind of questions you want to ask. I mean, deeply curious, ideally deeply curious. We've got a couple questions from the panel. I'll go ahead, Mitch. Uh, Mr. Krasny, thanks for joining us. Uh, longtime listener, first time question. Uh, I'm very interested in when you know you have somebody. What I, what I mean by that is when you're conducting an interview, at what point do you know that you've made a connection and you can go where you need to go to uh, get the most of that interview? It's a splendid question and uh, an all-important one in some ways, but you, it's an intuitive. Uh, I don't mean to be evasive by calling it intuitive, but it is a kind of intuitive thing. You know when you've established some kind of rapport. You watch the person's body language, you watch the facial expressions, those kinds of things are often a giveaway. I mean, it's like playing poker in a way. I'm a tournament poker player, and, you know, I try to read faces, and to some extent, being an interviewer is something very close to that kind of skill. Uh, and you know when you're energetically in a kind of mutual, I call it a dance, I know, for lack of a better metaphor, but it is sort of like a dance, and you're not necessarily the leader, you're there's a mutuality that's operating there, and you really feel it. You feel the high energy. It's, a, it's almost like a velocity um, to a great degree. And you know you're going at a speed, and you know you're going at a clip that's about as good as it gets. It's optimal. One of the things that's a little different, I think, is a lot of your, a lot of your work for KQED, I don't think, had a video. You, know, you didn't see the other person on the other side. And when we're doing uh, Gray Matter uh, show that you have a, a someone sitting in front of you, do you find it easier to do the interview when you can see the person in front of you? I do, because of what I just suggested about reading faces and everything. But I remember Ted Koppel telling me that he doesn't want to see the person he's interviewing. And uh, Terry Gross doesn't see the person that she's interviewing. So I think it's a, a question of personal preference or professional preference. For me, I, I do like to see the person I'm interviewing. But one of the great things about radio is it is a theater of the mind, and you can create whatever you want in terms of that person's expressions just through hearing the voice and hearing what the voice is essentially presenting to you, you know, because it's a presentation. Absolutely. Um, Harshid, you have a question? Yes, uh, pleasure to have you here, Mr. Krasny. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, so I remember people like Nipin Mehta and Astronomer that was on Grey Matter and some of these folks that are in their expertise, but um, with this new process of a digital first event where you know we have producers or we have people asking their opinions or questions, um, and then you have your own interviewing style and skills, what do you feel is the difference maker for a digital first type of atmosphere. Uh, Alex kind of shined on it with his previous question to you, but how do you feel that it's changed or with Grey Matter itself, who sticks out to you as far as all of these interviews you've done so far for Grey Matter? I want to get at the heart of your question. Uh, I think, I mean, when you bring in the digital, for example, you're asking to what extent that really plays its way into the work that I do or the work that that I am given to on, on Grey Matter. Um, let me let me ask you to. I'll be an interviewer of you for a moment here. Let me ask you to just flesh that out a little bit. What are you after here? What are you looking for? Well, I'm trying to understand. What do you want to know? What I want to understand is 
you have questions coming in from others and in the way you speak, how can you mix the two? I use a screen reader myself, so I have something talking in my ear all the time. But then when you want to say something clear and concise, how do you improve that skill? Well, you had mentioned before producers, and they do you know, certainly play a role in, uh, in, in the work that I do. It certainly played a role, a very significant role, in the work I did on radio or when I'm doing a live interview on stage. Uh, it's all part of what you take in you know, what you absorb sort of by, by osmosis. Um, but I'm at least trying to move the person and move the conversation or the interview itself in ways that will be enlightening. I mean, that's the primary purpose of what you're doing, and you have to put that ahead of almost everything. It's got to enlighten, and it has to be energetic, and it has to be moving forward all the time. I mean, to some extent... It's like chess pieces, you know, you're moving them forward and whatnot, or I used to make the analogy of being like a, a pitcher on the, you're, you're mixing up your pitches somewhat, but at the same time, you want to throw the best pitches you can, keeping in mind the fact that you want that person to do well, just as it's not only you that's doing well, maybe even more so it's the person you're talking to that's doing well. You want to draw that person out as much as you can. Uh, Alexander. Yeah, so one of the things that I've been battling with lately, and I'll give you a very specific example, but when it comes to the interview, once the interview is done, with respect to the editorial process, do you ever feel that it's appropriate to cut a certain segment out of a show to protect the guests that you were interviewing? And in my specific case here, I feel protective of my client's podcast because I produce his show. We just had a comedian on this week who said a couple of things that we both feel that we should probably cut, not only to protect that guest, but I also, for me, because my name is on the show, I feel like my reputation is on the line if, if this goes south. Well, it shows your sensitivity that you are concerned about that, and certainly that's been the hallmark of gray matter, and it's been a wonderful relief for me in some ways. Uh, and I'll tell you why. I mean, I used to do live radio so that no net, you know, whatever went out there went out there. There was no possibility to edit as opposed to say somebody like Terry Gross, whom I respect, but everything is edited and it's edited not only in terms of the appropriateness of the content, but maybe as you suggested or intimated, you want to protect the guest, you want to protect your own reputation. All those things are on the line. Every time you have somebody on, especially somebody who's controversial or maybe, warranting some kind of censorship. It puts you in a kind of quandary, though, and it's reflected in your question and the, and the sense, seriousness of your question. Uh, is that your job, you know, to, to censor somebody? Or should it be you know, just whatever's coming out? Uh, that's a difficult question that I think has to do with your own prudence and what you want to do and what you feel your reputation is and ought to be. So they're really personal questions. But frankly, editing the editing process has been, and almost, I hesitate to use this word, joyful in some ways for me, because I can cut stuff out that I don't like or that I think makes the guest sound not as rich and not as smart and not as able as that guest one hopes is. So, yeah, there's a real editorial process advantage. Uh, Liberty? Hi, Mr. Krasny. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, my question for you is the highlight reel is always the, the exciting part. All the wonderful interviews you've had, the great guests. But then also for, for us, 
the learning, there's a lot of gems in what didn't go right. And so my question for you is when there's an interview that might not be going the way that you want it to do, to how do you reel it in? How do you course correct it? How can we learn from that? Sometimes it just means you have to steer things in a different direction. You, you, you may be, in fact, getting into the sort of content that you, on a number of times I feel this is not going anywhere really or this is just lackadaisical. It doesn't have life to it or something. So, you know, if you have some things in your quiver that are going to be useful to you, pull them out. Let's, let's, let's just go in another direction. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you can do it very naturally and do it in ways that don't cloud up the content at all, uh, sometimes just through a segue or sometimes just through thinking, well, you reminded me of something here, let's go to this instead or let's go back to something that we talked about before. So you're kind of always anticipating looking for different ways. There are a myriad number of ways you can go with content, especially if you're well-prepared. So you want to avail yourself of those, especially when you're running against what I think you've suggested is a kind of obstacle or challenge that doesn't seem to be yielding what you want it to yield. Go, Jeffrey. Uh, thank you. Thank you for being on. I noticed that there's a lot of, there you were, there you said a lot of kind of big words uh, that uh, a couple of them that I had to really think about uh, as you were talking there. And instead made me wonder what type, because they always say, you know, try and stay for blogging, for interviewing, for a about a fifth grade uh, level uh, for anybody. But then, you know, if you're if you're interviewing a physicist, do you want to go up to that level uh, of a college or beyond, or do you want to bring it down, or do you try and keep it at an even keel? You don't want to get too esoteric. I mean, that's that that can be a danger. I'm I'm really good with physicists because I'm sort of dumb about physics, so I ask a lot of questions that come out of ignorance, even though. I try to absorb as much as I can beforehand to give me a lay understanding of the land, so to speak, so that I can ask questions at least that are intelligent or that are revelatory of some kind of meaning, deeper meaning, ideally. But you don't want to get into territory that's too... I mean, I have a PhD in literature, and sometimes I'll realize that I can be talking to someone and sound like the professor that I was for many years, and I don't want to sound that way. You know, you, you don't want to be too academic or esoteric, and... I think there are dangers in that. You want to remember that your audience is as broad as possible. It's, it's a lay audience, and that's the audience that you're trying to bring out the interview for. That's who you want to hear. If you feel like you have a hard question you're going to ask, do you, do you keep, do you, I often, when I have that, I keep it till the end. <laughs> like, like, I'm going to have a great conversation. I want to get my interview done because I'm always afraid that, that, the, that the interviewee is going to shut up. You know, like as soon as I, I you know, I, I put, the, put something in that's hard for them, they, I'm afraid they're going to clam up on me and that's going to be the, the rest of my show. Do you, do you think about where you might ask those hard questions? Yeah, again, that's, that's a very good question, Alex, because uh, sometimes a hard question can be dangerous. It, it's a minefield. Uh, and there are ways to move around it. There are ways to ensure... Sometimes just with a little bit of a prelude or a preface of some sort saying, uh, um, this bothers me to ask you, uh, or I know this is going to sound controversial, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. I mean, giving it a little bit of a frame that provides some comfort for the person or at least establishes that this may be rough. Don't overdo that, 
but also I like the way you say tuck it in. You know, sometimes you tuck that in and you think, this is a really good moment to bring up that question because this person has led you along a path where you can go there, almost provided you a way of going there. And so it's not as if you're attacking or you're being too aggressive or something along those lines. We have a ton of questions lining up. (laughs) So let's go ahead and jump into the first question from our listeners. First one comes from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada, and he says, how do you manage to prevent someone from reading things to you which they have prepared? Is there a way to easily convince them to put down the text? It's also a good question because I found through many years of interviewing authors of all kinds of books, they come in sometimes almost prepped by the publicist. Let's, I'll ask a question and they'll give the information that the publicist feels ought to be out there to sell the book have to be really attuned to that in ways that try to ensure that it doesn't happen. And the only way to do that to some extent is to say, look, this isn't, this isn't what I was getting at. Because they'll give you an answer that's almost irrelevant to what you've asked. They just want to get the content in there that will sell the book. So steer it back and bring it back to what you want to find out. And that is often what you almost by necessity have to do. You want to bring it back to something that you're really asking because there will be people who will have their own agenda and who will try to say things. And and sometimes it's not necessarily just selling the book. Sometimes they just go off uh, on a square. I was thinking now that Robert Kennedy Jr. has uh, declared his candidacy for the president of the United States, pulling many votes away from probably Joe Biden, who is the declared candidate, not only because of his position on vaccines, but also because of the fact that he's a Kennedy. I was remembering, because it was a very memorable interview with him, where he was just holding forth. And I said to him, and that was, again, the elephant in the room, I said, we're not having a conversation here. You're orating. You know, I didn't say it with that kind of aggression, but that was pretty much the direct way I put it to him. And and, uh, did I want to put him on the spot? Yeah, I did. Because there was no real Q&A. There was no real conversation. It was like he was giving a speech. And this has happened a few times in my career. Uh, and then the, in, in, it happened with Art Buckwald, and it also happened with Jonathan Kozel, names which some of you may know. Uh, and what happened in each of those instances was they say, oh, sorry, I apologize. And then they go on doing it, you know, just continue to do it. So what, what, what you, you do, you're kind of in a fix with that, uh, and you have to keep trying as best you can, endeavoring to reel it in. Thank you, Courtney. Yeah, that's interesting. I wondered, I was going to ask uh, if you, when interviewing politicians, which tend to run down there through their talking points, do you ever challenge uh, an interviewee and uh, on something they've said? Uh, and does that put you in an adversarial position in the interview? And does it kind of derail the interview if you become a challenger to what they're saying? Again, a very good and important question. You, you can... Um become adversarial or you can be perceived as adversarial, which with politicians isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I often draw the line in terms of interviewing where politicians are concerned, they're in a separate category because you want to challenge them. You need to challenge them. I mean, there are too many politicians who are absolutely loaded with BS and, you know, again, it's their agenda. It's what they want to talk about. You're not necessarily significant in any way to them except as a catalyst to say what they want to say to get votes or to press their agenda or whatever. So you really do have to come across as a different kind of interlocutor. 
someone who is challenging them, putting them on the spot. And I certainly took great pride in doing that with politicians. I did it a lot, and I think it needs to be done. Next question. Hasma Gajar in Cape Town, South Africa, is up with, how do you avoid projecting and or promoting yourself to the audience by citing, this is what I did, and this is what I think, and when I was in Europe, and so forth, instead of retaining the focus on the topic and or your guest? Well, again, it's a it's an excellent question because there's a lot of, um, how shall I put it, uh, you can succumb to that very easily. You know, you want to talk about things, and, and that helps with what Alex brought up about the conversational mode. It, it, it makes sometimes, it makes it just seem better rapport. Well, you did that, and I did that, and I had a similar experience, or I had something that was very different than that. It's okay to bring yourself in, I think, and, and, and I do it, but there's a line that you ought to be well aware of, a Rubicon of sorts, and you have to be as sensitive to that as you possibly can be. You can step over that line. It's just like I was talking about humor and how important humor can be. You can step over that line, too. There are too many interviewers who think they're comedians. I mean, there are a lot of good interviewers who are comedians, but sometimes uh, you really have to check yourself. And what is that BS detector? That's What does it tell you? That's Hemingway's language. What is it telling you about going too far with talking about yourself or what is it telling you about trying to be funny when you're not necessarily funny at all? Those are tough things to reckon with. I found them tough to reckon with. I found there was a whole kind of continuum in interviewing and, and I've mentioned this uh, in articles that I've written about it where you can um, sometimes be, the uh, best way I can describe this is uh, you, you can bring too much of yourself in or you can bring not enough of yourself in. There's a, a difficult kind of navigation there where you have to sort of feel what's right about it. I know that sounds kind of woo-woo, but uh, it is a, a, almost a kind of emotional ascent that you give to what is correct here, what is right. Am I going too far talking about myself? Or if I'm, can I bring something in here that's really illuminating about myself? And there are interviewers who completely keep themselves out of it, and there are interviewers who throw themselves in. It's I think it's a better choice to some extent about how you do that mix and the best, excuse me, the best way that that succeeds for you or fails. And for everybody listening, I just want to underline that we have a lot of questions. Um, and so definitely focus on voting on those questions to kind of move them around the way you'd like them. I don't know if we're going to get to all of them before we get to the end of the hour. And I know that Michael has a hard out. So, um, so just make sure that you're, uh, in there voting on those questions, uh, vote early, uh, vote often, <laughs> vote often, not, not vote often. This is in Chicago. Um, so anyway, uh, let's go to the next question. Next one comes. By the way, let me just insert very good questions. Uh, Always impressed with office hours, people. The next one comes from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. Says if you're going to interview a guest who has written a book, do you read the entire book before conducting the interview? Well, as I said before, uh, there was a myth about me that I read every book that uh, actually I interviewed uh, uh, the authors. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that is simply not the truth. Uh, I would read novels or I would read, say, a volume of poetry or even a play. But nobody could read as many books as I was constantly. I mean, I would have sometimes a two-hour show like Office Hours five days a week when I started. And there would be in those ten hours of the week, there would be eight authors <laughs> How am I going to read that many authors in one week? It's impossible, and it was impossible. So you have to read sparingly sometimes. You read 
a couple of chapters where you read what has been written about that work, which can be very enlightening. Uh, sometimes, talk about controversial things, sometimes you read, let's say, a, a review, a critical review, and it'll be very negative. Do you bring that into the interview? Uh, not if you necessarily want to keep rapport with the person you're interviewing, because that can be very sensitive. And almost anybody you interview and say, uh, are you bothered by bad reviews? They'll say no, or I don't read reviews. Uh, people lie about that constantly, I'm afraid. Because I, I suspect as an author, which I am, I read anything that's been written about my work. And it's just, I think, what any author does. Yeah. So you have to read sparingly. And sometimes, as I said, it's just the introduction, the first and the last chapter, a few other chapters, and read as much as you can about it. But... No, I can't read the whole book all the time. I didn't. How much do you lean on uh, producers for that? I mean, so in the past, I mean, did the producer have the... I know that like with some other interviewers, um, they rely very heavily on their producers to ask the questions, you um, know, or to, or to formulate some of those questions. And how much has that been part of your process in the, in the past? Well, there's some interviewers who rely entirely on producers. The producers write the questions. The producers decide, yeah. you know, what the content should be. I, I and again, there's a whole spectrum on that. I think uh, I'm, I'm more <laughs> the other sort. I like to do everything on my own. But uh, I had a production staff, and they were very valuable to me in providing me ways of looking. They fed me. I was like a black hole, you know, constantly absorbing. And they would feed me sometimes questions, but usually just things. Did you know about this? It was uh, written by this person, or did you know about this? It was written about this person, and so forth. Right. Or did you know about this artistic exhibit that featured this particular painter? You know, those kinds of things were very valuable to me. Next question. Hasma Gajar in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, when you have a list of questions for your guests, how do you avoid reading them out or appearing anxious to go through your list, especially if the conversation meanders in a different direction? Good question, because... And this is, again, personal preference. I don't have a list of questions in front of me. If you want to, with many publicists, and I, w I work with my producers with publicists, you can have somebody actually from the public relations department give you, and sometimes they give it to you without even asking, you're asking for it. They give you a list of questions. You can ask them, and you can ask them in this order. And what it's designed to do, obviously, is to sell the book or whatever it is the person's selling. So I like to have areas of inquiry. That works for me better than questions. I'm going to ask this question, then I'm going to ask that question. It sounds too rote to me, and it always has. Uh, if it works for you, then do it. But I think what I suggest and what I advocate for myself and for others who want more of a spontaneity and more of a ease is to think we're going to look at certain areas, and maybe you had this in mind to go to earlier on, but it, you want to save it for later. Tuck it in, as Alex said, or you have something that's going to work early on that you didn't think would work early on, an area to explore. And some of that can be wonderfully spontaneous. And you want that spontaneity in an interview, as opposed to the road of going this question and then that question. And that usually shows. I mean, I've heard interviewers criticized because the audience is pretty smart about these things often. They certainly can detect the fact that if you're just going down from one question to the next so think maybe in terms of areas to explore. It can be valuable. 
I mean, I think that one of the things I keep on hearing you talking about is how you just kind of feel your way through it. And a lot of that just comes from experience. Like you're just, you know, you, you do a lot of something and you start to, you stop talking about how to do it and you start talking about how it, how you felt and how you felt like this was going to be the right way and so on and so forth. How have you seen your process change over the decades? Because you've been doing this now for three or four decades. Um, what would you say... What, 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 how would you say it evolved from 30 years ago to where it is now? I think when I started out interviewing, I was a kid. You know, I was in commercial radio for years before I went into public radio. And uh, I had that syndrome that a lot of interviewers had of wanting to be the smartest kid in the room, you know, uh, and wanting to show how much I'd prepared and how much knowledge I had and so forth. As time went on, that became more diminished, of less importance much more focus on the person I was talking to. And I think that was a good thing. I, I think, you know, if I'm talking about the art or the craft of interviewing, you want to focus on the person much more than on yourself. Although there are some people who are very entertaining, you know, and that's a different cup of tea, so to speak. But I realized that nah, wasn't all that interesting as I thought I was or all that entertaining. It was the people I was talking to who were much more interesting than I was. Next question. Robert Shoji in Los Angeles has one we brushed on earlier. When an interview falls off the track, how do you get the interview back on point? Again, a very good question and a difficult one because I think it depends on whom you're speaking to and who you're actually doing or conducting the interview with. Sometimes it just means um, shifting gears, as I indicated earlier. Uh, but again, it's always good to be forthcoming and to be even blunt, say, we're going off the tracks a bit here, aren't we? This isn't necessarily where I wanted the interview to go or maybe where you wanted the interview to go. So let's let's reel it in a little bit or let's move over here. Or I mean, there are all kinds of transitional ways like that that just should come natural to you as an interviewer and ought to be second nature, especially when something can go off the tracks. But when you say go off the tracks, that can be unrelated to content. You can feel suddenly there's some adversarial kinds of things that are going on, hostility even, aggression, whatever. I think those things all have to be handled professionally, as professional as you can possibly be. Next question. Christian Kohler in Somerset, New Jersey. How do you prevent giving too much verbal feedback like, yes, uh-huh, during an interview when still making the interviewer, interviewee feel that they are heard? Yeah, again, uh, very good question because I listen to other interviews and I sometimes recoil. I hear so much of that in in some people's interviews. I mean, interviews are stylistic. You know, it's your own personal style, your own voice, and you have to find what's most authentic for you. But there are people who are just too agreeable sounding. And, you know, especially if you're interviewing somebody like a politician, you don't want to sound agreeable sounding. You don't want to sound like a lackey or a sycophant. So you just keep moving it forward and try to, if that's your impulse, try to get it under control. Because <laughs> it can sound, I mean, listen to your interviewing style. Do you think you use too much of this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, great. Or, you know, because uh, that can be, like I say, slavish sounding, ridiculous, absurd. Next question. James Babbitt in San Diego. Do you have any tips for aspiring interviewers who want to improve their interviewing skills and style? Well, I, I think sometimes um, 
it's not necessarily a bad idea to say to somebody who's an acquaintance of yours or even a friend, let me interview you and let's talk about actually what I've accomplished or what I needed to do. Because uh, this is somebody you obviously have some comfort with and at ease with and maybe you're curious about. And gauge yourself, pace yourself. You know, are you moving things forward? Are you getting things that you normally wouldn't ask or find out about on your own in your friendship or your acquaintanceship with this person? Uh, have things come into light that are perhaps unexpected of a surprise? In other words, all of those kinds of things can be done just kind of in a practiced way, in a rehearsal way, to maybe bring out what you don't have in the way of skills, but you want in the way of skills. And, just and, a suggestion. And I, yeah, and, and you know, I, I, when I first started radio, I asked the the music director who was who was on before me. I said, "Well, how do I uh, how do I get, get good at this?" And he's like, "Your first two hundred shows will not be very good." <laughs> like he just, I'm he sorry, just I missed your line there, Alex. <laughs> because I just I just like he goes. I, he said it a little rougher than that, but he said basically said they're not gonna they're not gonna be very good, and you just have to get over that. And when you talk to YouTubers, uh, Marquez Brownling one time said that he said your first hundred YouTube videos are not gonna be very good, you know. And and is how much of it is just? I guess the question for you is how much of it is just practice like just you know like like a like an instrument like anything else that you just have to do a lot of interviews to get to a point where you're comfortable doing a lot of interviews yeah i think um that's the key you know the old study about a thousand times uh makes for some kind of excellence but i also think and i i, I hope this doesn't sound troubling People used to ask me, how do you interview? And I'd say, like a bat. You know, I go into a cave and my radar would work or it wouldn't work. Um, there is some of that, too. You know, for example, some people are just naturally at ease doing gymnastics, which I'm not. Or when, when I studied martial arts, I was okay at it, but I wasn't as good as I wanted to be, you know. Um, some things are just, I, I, I taught a lot of writing, and I would tell students, you know, sometimes you can get your writing better but if you think you're going to be, you know, illustrious or a star or whatever, you may be deceiving yourself. In fact, even if you are regarded that way, you may still be deceiving yourself. Sometimes I feel just wanting as a and as an interviewer. I didn't do that as well as I should have. I didn't do, always be critical of yourself. But when you do it more and more, you do get better. And especially if you get some distance and really evaluate what you're doing and evaluate how you're doing it. And when you're, I mean, if I listen to some of my early interviews, I, <laughs> I just kind of recoil, you know, because practice does not necessarily make perfect, but it makes much better. Next question. Robert Soji in Los Angeles. Earlier in your career, what was the best interviewing advice you received? Boy, uh, kind of a very thoughtful question. Uh, I think I talked early on in my career with people like Ted Koppel and Dick Cavett, you know, names that are almost forgotten now. Uh, and I wanted to interview them, of course, about their career and so forth. But I would also ask them about interviewing. And early on, I would hear things like, um, you got to be up. You know, you you really have to... Think of yourself as a performer. Both of these names that I just mentioned were TV interviewers and, you know, got their bones, as we used to say, by doing a lot of TV interviews. But they, they both really kind of focused on the importance of the performance. 
I mean, life itself can be seen as a performance, but particularly when you're interviewing someone, you're doing it in ways that I realized early on, thanks to that kind of advice, had to do with a performance. I know that sounds a little bit um, inauthentic because if you perform, you know, you're being perhaps not as genuine as you ought to be or something along those lines, but it is a performance. When you're interviewing, there's an audience, there's a way of moving the interview and moving it forward that you have to be constantly conscious of. You want to be ideally energetic and alive and filled with vitality and all of those kinds of things. That all suggests to me what they had suggested early on, performance. Next question. Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. Michael, how has the introduction of viewer questions via Mukana expanded and or complicated your interview and conversations? I'm sorry, Chris is asking about how the questions... You know, the question, how we manage the questions for Gray Matter. When you have the questions coming in from all over the world and you have them on a screen and oh, you know, how, uh, how's that made it, how's that, how's that impacted what you're doing? It's, it's enhanced everything. I mean, uh, in fact, Chris is one of the people who's asked questions. I remember to Chris from Tempe, Arizona quite well in a number of the interviews I did for Gray Matter. Uh, you, um, especially when you have a good audience like this and you have people who are curious and interested and uh, seeking knowledge and so forth. Uh, it's, it's something to uh, delight in. And, and I always learn immensely from my listeners. I did on Forum, which Alex gave a nice plug to earlier. It's a very different show now, a couple years later. Uh, and I do whenever I do a Gray Matter podcast. I learn immensely from those who throw questions at. Yeah, yeah I find that... <laughs> I don't even want to interview people like when someone has a new product. I'm just like, I just want you to come on the show because I know that we will have better questions than I will. <laughs> you know, so, so, um, next question. Mitchell Hill, Wilmington, Delaware. And here on the panel wonders, who at this point in your career would you most like to interview? I still would like uh, to interview Kissinger. I came close to that, uh, especially since I've just heard Neil Ferguson talk about Kissinger again. Uh, I, I've wanted to interview people who would be challenging to me. Trump would be challenging to me, obviously. I, I don't think I'll ever have occasion to interview either of them, although I came close with Kissinger. We had him booked for his book on China, and last minute he said no thanks because uh, he had a Council of Foreign Relations meeting, which some of you may remember one of the early podcast, uh, Gray Matter podcast was with Richard Haas, who was head of the Council on Foreign Relations. And I thought, Council on Foreign Relations meeting rather than sell your book? I thought maybe somebody warned him about me as an interviewer. Uh, at least I immodestly made myself feel that uh, vanity. Uh, I'd like to interview W. Uh, I never had the occasion to interview him. Uh, these are just, you know, in terms of domestic politics and but there are so many others you know I, I had the great privilege and pleasure of interviewing international stars and people of international caliber and positions and so forth and you know the, the list is especially in geopolitics is endless nearly yeah, go ahead, I mentioned for example early on uh, since we uh, have Mickey as our editor here uh, the Philippines. I'd love to interview the young Marcos. I'd love to interview, you know, heads of state, <clears throat> uh, 
Um, don't think I'm going to... I was talking uh, about Modi on a cab ride back to my home last night. I was in New York for a couple of weeks and uh, I had a Sikh cab driver and we were talking about India and Modi. I'd love to interview Modi, you know. Are these going to be likely for me? No, probably not. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Mitchell, you were going to ask Yeah, that. I just wanted to comment. Uh, I have interviewed uh, Henry Kissinger who just turned 100, by the way. That's right. He was he was intense. You better have your full game on when you do that, Michael. <laughs> uh, next, next, next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What practices should be av- avoided for interviewers? What mistakes will close down a guest or short-circuit a show? Sometimes if you get too personal um, with a guest, it can be a real danger and it will shut things down. Um, it's it's very hard to know, though. I mean, some people like to talk about their divorces and they like to talk about, you know, uh, their failures and they like to talk about the kinds of things that make other people very sensitive, overly sensitive and um, shut down. So tread carefully if you think you're going to be in those kind of territories and uh, be advised that it can, in some instances, it can surprise you, too. I mean... I've been surprised on so many occasions. I remember interviewing Woody Harrelson and something came up about his father, who some of you may know is in prison and was a hired assassin and a very strange history that his father had. And I, I thought it would be um, very difficult to broach that, and I didn't. Uh, but then question came about his father on a call, and he was clearly uncomfortable with it. I had avoided it, but it came in. I remember interviewing Cat Stevens, and he had said some things about Salman Rushdie that were very troubling. He said, you know, Rushdie should be fatwaed. I'll invent the word there. Should be killed because the fatwa had been put out on him by the Ayatollah. And uh, I was told not to ask that question about what Cat Stevens had said. And I never agreed to not asking a question by someone's request. But in that instance, I did because I knew it would come over the phone lines, when I opened up the phone lines for listeners, which I did very early. And so uh, I was honorable in not saying what I wanted to ask, but somebody else said it. And uh, sure enough, Cat Stevens <laughs> didn't want to go there. Sometimes you just have to, again, trust your intuition. The next question. Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany is up next. How, if at all, do you correct someone who said something objectively wrong in an, in an answer? That's a tough one, and uh, it's sometimes difficult because you want to do it uh, on many instances, and you feel, is this going to set things off the rails? Is this going to get me into trouble with this person because I don't want to be in trouble with this person? But almost again, it's almost a question of honor. I've written a lot about that whole notion of what's honorable and uh I think, I mean, for me personally, if I know something is absolutely untrue, not factual, you can go at it very gently and say, well, I don't, I think what you just said is probably off the mark or it's not necessarily, you may want to refine that a little bit and give the person the possibility of switching and, and saying it in a different way or amending it. But sometimes you have to be just a little aggressive and appropriate. Uh, and say, I don't think that's a fact, or forgive me for putting it to you this way, but you're wrong about that, I think. Um, 
and then you run the risk of having someone dogmatically say, no, I know I'm right. I mean, I've had that instance where I knew I was right or, and, and the person I was interviewing was wrong. And there have been a couple instances where I actually thought I was right and I wasn't right and the person was right. So just be very careful about how you go at that non-objective. By the way, in journalism, I'm not sure there is any objectivity. I mean, I think it's often subjective and language is used, so it makes it even more subjective. But you have to at least challenge people when they distort things or when they say things that are untrue and are non-factual. That's why I mentioned, you know, wanting to interview certain politicians, but some of those politicians just lie so categorically that it, you know, it is incredibly challenging. It would be incredibly challenging, which I like. I like the idea of being challenged that way. Next question. Robert Soji, Los Angeles, back with what techniques do you use to get the interviewee comfortable? Well, it's it's often easy to get someone comfortable if you talk about their work uh, initially or talk about the things that they do that they're proud of. Uh, you can do that before a program. You can even, again, bring out of your quiver some kind of fact about the person that you may have come across in your research that normally wouldn't be brought to that person's attention because you're showing the person that you know a good deal about him or her or them. Now we want to use that pronoun now. Um, you're showing that person that you're interviewing that uh, it's important to you, that that person is important to you. And you put them at ease with those kinds of things. You kind of maybe even joke around about, well, I was reading this when you... I remember I interviewed Alan Arkin once, and uh, the actor, and I said, um, I'd, been, I'd read an interview with him where somebody asked him what his favorite role was, and he said, Kaiser, and uh, Kaiser role being a kind of bread, you know. So uh, before we went on the air, I said to him, I said, I was reading that CBS interview you did years ago where you were asked what your favorite bread was, and uh, excuse me, your favorite role was, and your answer was Kaiser. And he laughed. It was, it was a wonderful moment. It was a magical moment, but it also put him at ease. It made a kind for a kind of opening up of rapport between us, and uh, it was a very easy and, and wonderful interview. How, how important is that pre-show time? For you when, how, how important is the pre-show time for you? Well, that's exactly what I was getting at, Alex. Is, you know, um, I know it's important to you before we do a Great Matter podcast, and it's important to me too because you can kind of, and uh, in in sometimes in even almost a chummy way, talk to the person you're talking about and saying, uh, well, I hope we can talk about this, you know, or I hope we can talk about that because that's very important. And you can feel things out in terms of what might be less comfortable or more comfortable that way. And uh, But for all the interviewing I did in public radio, sometimes we didn't start talking until it was showtime. You know, there was no green room that I went into to prep the person or to get the person comfortable. It's just on the air, and that was it. And I find that to be so useful. I mean, for the for the pre-show, I know one one of the ones that we had uh, before we had the interview with Ken Burns, you know, and his team um, was it was like a little party. <laughs> like, like it was like a a solid twenty twenty minutes of you know just this great and it, and it definitely I think you could feel the warmth uh, when we started the show um, that I don't you know would have been there. They're they're they are big fans of you, <laughs> so so it was. It was uh, it was going to go well, but it, it definitely had this feeling that 
I don't know if it would have happened. You know, it just we came right out of the gate in a in a great space. Well, full disclosure, uh, Ken Burns and I have been friendly for years, so uh, it made for easy warmth. But there are certain people, you know, that you talk to you've never talked to before, or, and you have to make them feel comfortable. And that early time is a good way to do that. Next question. Stefan Fischer, Worksburg, Germany, says, can an interviewee say something that would make you stop the interview? Or do certain extreme expressions just become another topic of the conversation? I've actually stopped a few interviews where uh, there was something um, early on in my career, egregiously homophobic, racist, you know, and you'd need an inner Geiger counter sometimes to decide what that is. Um. But, you know, with certain people that you interview, you can almost expect that kind of uh, problem. And when I say stop the interview, uh, I've never actually cut off any. Betty Friedan had walked out of an interview with me. That's a whole story in itself. But I've never said, let's stop this interview and it's not going on and we're not going to continue it. I've always felt I could confront whatever it was that came up. But I would stop in a way that said, this is unacceptable, or this language is simply not appropriate. Um, And uh, things can go off the rails when you do that. But again, it's almost a question of what's appropriate, what's honorable, what's right. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, wants to know what are the favorite interviews that you've listened to? And what about the interview made you want to maybe re-listen to it? Well, I've interviewed, uh, excuse me, I've <clears throat> listened to interviews that Terry Gross has done with a good deal of respect. Uh, and uh, sometimes Terry will ask, <clears throat> excuse me, will ask questions that um, have been fed to her. That's, I think, well known. And sometimes uh, she will be a little bit um, starstruck with whoever she's interviewing, especially people from the silver screen, but I listen to her with respect and admiration for the most part. Um, I've heard interviews that Fareed Zakaria, who I've interviewed and I've known for many years, has done, which have impressed me, especially where he's pressing and moving onward and opening things up, which he does very well with world leaders. Uh, I've heard interviews that particularly are more amateurish in terms of the lack of awareness about who the interviewer is, just fiddling around on podcasts or anything. Um, but we're very good. We're very high-toned and, and professional-sounding and uh, uh, impressed me. I think that was the tenor of the question. Uh, you know, what interviewers particularly have I found? I think Rachel Maddow is a good interviewer. I think, you know... Uh, I think Oprah is a good interviewer, uh, and I've learned a lot from a number of her interviews about the skills that she has. And um, like I said, early on when I was listening to people like Ted Koppel and Dick Cavett, I learned a great deal from them as well. Next question. Morgan Price, Victoria, British Columbia. How would you coach junior interviewers to try to draw out narrative in interviews, stories with multiple story beats? I'm not sure what a junior interviewer is, but, you know, um, a lot of interviewing has to do ultimately with getting those stories out, just like the question uh, suggests. 
getting the, the, into the right narrative or getting into a narrative which... Um, uh, so, so how do you coach somebody to do that? You coach them to ask questions that would open up storytelling, open up narrative. Uh, and, and sometimes that's simply a wide open question as opposed to a much more narrow or specific kind of question. Sometimes it's just a kind of question that says, oh, you were in uh, South Africa in, uh, during apartheid. You know, what was that like? Uh, or... Uh, you know that the person was perhaps uh, in in uh, Washington when the so-called insurrection took place, um, and had the opportunity to observe it. Just open it up, open it up widely by saying, "You were there. You were the observer. You were part of it." Whatever the question gets to, tell me the story. What's your story? What's, what what did you see? What did you hear? What did you experience? You're drawing that out. Again, that's basic journalism, who, what, where, when, and why. But it's the person telling the story. Next question. And this one is from Liberty White in Atlanta. As the style of interviewing changes and becomes more fast-paced and sensational, what advice would you give to the next generation to get quality content? Well, <laughs> the, the advice would be to try to do it as high uh, and professional standards as you can. But the the way the question is phrased is absolutely right. I think interviewing has become so much more fast-paced, so much more sensational. Uh, that is, journalism itself has become much more that way, or what passes for journalism, what often I think shouldn't even be called journalism. So hold yourself to high standards would be what I would suggest. And sometimes that cannot necessarily be in your best interest professionally in terms of advancing. Sometimes the most advancement comes from getting the scoop or getting the sensation. Uh, but if you want my advice, hold fast to integrity as much as you possibly can. But also be true to your own voice. That's, I think, inviolable in importance. Michael, thank you so much for your time. I know you just came back from New York, and I just really appreciate you spending a morning with us. Um, that was an incredible hour. Um, well, thanks to all of you for all the splendid questions, and thanks to Alex, who is always, uh, it's been, uh, one of the great things about doing Gray Matter has been working with Alex and his team, and uh, I appreciate being invited, and I uh, hope all of you were, whatever interviewing you do, life itself is interviewing, <laughs> by the way, just making conversation with people and finding out things about people. Uh, hone those skills. And, Make them and, as strong as you possibly can. And we had to push back at least half the questions. <laughs> so we're going to have to try to get, persuade you to come back in a, in a couple months uh, to do this again. It was just really, really a fantastic hour. Um, so thank you so much. And of course, a quick reminder to everyone that you can listen to Michael um, talking about you know, doing his interviews on graymatter.show. Uh, and of course, you can jump in and ask questions and so on and so forth. So hopefully well, we'll see some of you there. Uh, thanks to the producers uh, who asked all the great questions and made sure that this all, all moved forward. Really, really good questions for the hour. Uh, thanks to the panelists. Can't do this without you. Um, it's really, it was a great panel today. Um, and really, it's a great panel most days. <laughs> but it's a great panel today. It was really especially good. And so it was really great to have all of you here. And, uh, and thanks to the incredible team every day that gets up, the small little village that just pops up all over the world to have this, um, this uh, great event happen every single day seven days a week 
Uh, this doesn't get done by us just jumping into Zoom. <laughs> this is a much more complicated process. Um, so really well done. Uh, we traveled um, uh, 112,000 miles, uh, 181,000 kilometers today, the Tlaloc Traversal. And that's uh, more than 891 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. No, Michael, this is the part where we just whisper. It's just kind of like the whisper room. We're kind of done. There's still text going on, but we're just kind of finishing up. Good, but thank you so much. It's good to have you. It's excellent. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, that was great. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. You do that every week. <laughs> we won't make you do it every week, Michael, but we could. We could. <laughs> For paying him double it. <laughs> 